that out. Hallelujah. Let's turn back over to Psalms chapter 85. This is the verse that I started with last night, and I'm going to start here, and we're going to continue talking about this. But in Psalms chapter 85 and in verse 10, it says, Mercy and truth are meant together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And I spent quite a bit of time last night just trying to show that these are polar opposites. They're things that could never come together. Because of truth, because of justice, because of integrity, how could God ever have mercy on us? Because we don't deserve it. Because we are unrighteous and not righteous, how could we ever have peace with God? And I spent quite a bit of time talking about that last night and trying to amplify that today we live in a society that's gotten so far away from morality and right standards and right way of thinking that now we look at people that are perverting everything, every single facet of life, and we think that, well, that's okay and it's an alternative lifestyle and it's just as viable as anything else. No, it's a terrible offense. It's an abomination is what God calls a lot of these ways that people are living. And how can a holy God have relationship with unholy people? This is a paradox. And the answer is found in Jesus. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 1 and look at a passage here. And of course, this is something that, you know, the answer is obvious. I know that most of you think, well, everybody knows this, but we don't live it. Most people are relating to God based on performance, based on their own goodness. And this is the very thing that's hindering us from seeing the power of God manifest in our life. Colossians chapter 1. In verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, talking about in Jesus, should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Boy, there is a mouthful in these verses. This is much more important than what most people recognize. This is saying in verse 20... That the way he made peace, remember this verse that we were using last night, that righteousness and peace have kissed each other? How did you ever bring, how could a righteous, holy God ever have peace with people who aren't righteous and holy? How could these two things ever coexist? How could they ever kiss each other? How could they come together? It says right here that he made peace through the blood of his cross. If you understand properly, this really raises the value that you place on Jesus and what He did for us. Most people do not fully appreciate and fully understand how imperative it was that Jesus had to come to this earth and be a man and suffer and die to take our sins. And they, they think that Jesus was just a part of the puzzle, that Jesus was a part of the equation. But then we also have to add to that our own goodness. And we also have to live up to a minimum standard. 
I tell you, that kind of thinking, if we really understood what these verses are saying, that through the blood of His cross was how we were made, had peace with God. And we were alienated, but now we have been, um, what was the term? Reconciled in the body of His flesh through His death. If we fully understood what that meant, I guarantee you it would take care of this self-righteousness. It would take care of the condemnation. A person who feels condemned and guilty and God, how could you love me? God, how could you use me? You do not understand what Jesus paid. You think that Jesus is a part of it, that certainly you had to have Jesus, but you've also got to add to it your own goodness. I guarantee you that is a total unjustified opinion based on Scripture. It was Jesus that totally reconciled us to God. You didn't do anything to make yourself acceptable, to have peace with God. Jesus paid it all. And if He paid it all, that means that there's nothing left for you to pay. The only part that you have to do with it is you can either believe and receive or doubt and do without. You could reject it. You could ignore what Jesus has done and you could try and be acceptable to God based on your own performance, but you can't do anything to please God and to make yourself more worthy in the sight of God. I don't know if you're listening to what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is just completely contrary to the vast majority of religion today. Most religion is telling you the things that you have to do to please God and to make yourself acceptable and to get God to heal you and deliver you and set you free and to move in your life. You could go out here today and get on the internet and check out and you can find 10,000 sermons on the seven things you must do to make God move and to do this. And we're trying to get God to do all of these things, not understanding that we've already been reconciled through the blood of His cross. It's through what Jesus did. And if Jesus paid it all, then there's nothing left for you to pay. And any attempt on your part to try and pay something uh, undoes the atonement that Jesus has done. You weaken it. You pollute it. You defile it. You can't mix your own goodness. You can't look at your own holiness. You can't think that, God, I've got to be holy for you to move in my life. That dishonors Jesus. Now, you should be holy because holiness makes your heart softer towards God and more receptive to God. Holiness helps other people see the Lord in your life. There is still a, you still should live holy, but holiness is a byproduct. It's a fruit and not a root of salvation. And again, the church as a whole is preaching that, no, you've got to be holy before God will move in your life. You'll hear statements like, God won't use a dirty vessel. God had not got any other kind of vessel to use. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. You aren't going to be the first one. It is not according to your goodness and your holiness. You cannot deserve the blessing of God. And until you get this established and figured out, you'll never have mercy and truth together. You'll never have righteousness and peace kiss each other. You'll never come in to peace in your relationship with God because it's always going to put the burden upon your back to produce and to do things. I tell you, God is a just, holy God. And when God said that you eat of the fruit, you die. The soul that sins, it shall die. God bound Himself by that. God cannot change. Psalms chapter 89, I believe it's verse 34, says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone forth out of my lips. 
When God says something, it's a covenant. I guarantee you, if God supports a child, it's a covenant. He's not going to say, whoops, King's X. You know what? I'm having a little bit of trouble. I think I'll quit supporting. I'll violate my word. No, God says something. It's binding to him. And so when God says, you sin, you die. It was binding. Death is the wage of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The first part of that verse says, the wages of sin is death. Sin has a payment to it. There is a payday for sin. Every time you sin, it produces death. Sin has to be judged. You know, I had a pastor in a church that I went to, and this, it was kind of a strange church. It was a little bit radical. It was a Baptist church, but it was kind of radical for a Baptist church. And the pastor would literally stand on this part of the pulpit where you put your Bible and he would bend over and get the microphone and just scream and yell and he'd lose five pounds when he preached. Sweat would pour out of him and he would just scream. And one of his favorite things is, sin's got to be judged, sin's got to be judged. If you do something wrong, God's going to take it out in doctor bills. He's going to punish you. If you don't pay your tithes, he'll put you in the hospital and take 10% from you. So either pay up or God will put you in the hospital and take it from you. It was kind of more like the Godfather than God the Father. It was kind of like an extortion plot. That you pay up or God's going to get you. And anyway, one of his favorite statements was, sin's got to be judged, sin's got to be judged. And did you know that that's an absolute truth? Sin has to be judged. There is a payment for sin. But what this guy missed was that Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid for our sins. And you don't have to bear the judgment for your sins if you make Jesus your Lord. And if you make Jesus your Lord, He didn't bear the brunt of it, the bulk of it, and you just get now a minimum effect of sin. No, he paid it all so that in God's sight, it's just like you never sinned. It's just like you were righteous and holy and pure. Romans chapter 8 verse 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You have now had the righteousness of the law fulfilled in you, not because you have fulfilled it, but because you put faith in a Savior and God now looks at you as being righteous and pure. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Here's a dilemma. God is holy. God said you commit sin, you die. He can't change. And yet He loves you. That produces a dilemma. How does He have a relationship with people that don't deserve it? You know, I'm going to use an example here. I hesitate to do this, but it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. There is one television program that I watch. I have to admit, I watch one television program and I've watched pretty much all of them. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Some of you will know when I give this example. But anyway, the President of the United States, their daughter killed a person. And they presented this to the president. And what are you going to do? And the husband of the president, you, you can't do this to our daughter. And they begged and they pled and they did all of this stuff. And finally the president walked off, did some things, came back, said, I love you. 
I'm sorry that all these things have happened and you thought that, man, she was about to cave in and then she says, but you know what? I've taken an oath and I've sworn and you are wrong and the marshals are out here to arrest you. And man, when that happened, I said, yes, amen. Somebody finally operated in integrity and did the right thing. You know what? If you were the son or the daughter of the president and you did something, most of us would like to say, well, you're the president. You can do whatever. Forgive this. Ignore it. Give me a pardon. But you know what? If you are a person of integrity, you would do what's right, even if it's your own child. See, some people just don't, they don't have this degree of integrity and so they they don't see this potential dilemma. But God is holy and just. And God placed a judgment on sin of death. And that sin has to be paid for. And even though God loves us, God could not just sit there and say, oh, well, I choose to ignore this. You know, there's people that say, how could a loving God do this? Because God is a just and a holy God. Our God is a God of love, but He is righteous and holy. And and there has to be a judgment on sin. There is right and there is wrong. And God will never deviate. His love will not cause him to just, oh well, I I forgive you. No, there has to be a payment made. But you know, here's where that example pales or fails. Is that presidency went ahead and had their daughter arrested. But you know, if you were to make this a comparison with God, here would be what God did. We come to God because we've heard that He's a God of love. We say, can't you just forgive me? Can't you just look the other way? Can't you act as if I've never done anything? And because he's God, no, he can't. That sin's got to be judged. But then after he pronounces judgment, that you know what? Because you've done this, the soul that sins, it dies. The wages of sin is death. You're doomed. You're damned. He passes judgment on you. He brings the gavel down. But then he takes his robes off and walks around the corner and says, you know what? I'll take your judgment. And I'll die in your place. That's what happened. Jesus took our place. There had to be a judgment paid. And God didn't just commute the sentence and say, well, it's over with. God cannot change. He cannot lie. But brothers and sisters, here's the point I'm trying to get across. If you could understand that when Jesus died, it wasn't a token sacrifice. He didn't just die in principle. He didn't just give his life because somehow or another that was a part of the puzzle. Jesus paid the complete debt that you owed. Jesus went to hell and literally suffered in hell. Jesus died physically. He took the sin of the entire universe into his own body on the tree. And he paid the sin debt that you and I owed and wiped it out. And I'll probably go into more detail on this sometime this week. I won't spend the time right now to say it. But he didn't just pay for your sins up until the point that you got born again. And then every time you sin, thereafter you got to get that sin back under the blood. According to the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 and 12, he paid for all of your sins, past, present, and even future tense sins. Even sins that you haven't committed, 
He's paid for. Even the sins of people who aren't even born yet, that haven't even committed sin yet. Jesus paid the entire sin debt of the entire world at one time and sin has been eradicated and defeated and destroyed. And if you could understand that, then it would deliver you from this sense of guilt and condemnation that holds us back. It would deliver you from this performance-based thing that, oh, I've got to do this and this and this before God can heal me and before God will love me and before God will accept me. And that I've got to do all of these things. We need to understand that when Jesus paid the price, He paid it all and there is nothing left for you to do except to say thank you and reach out and take what was offered. And if you are still under a mentality that, oh, I've got to also live holy and earn these things and be worthy of God using me, then you dishonor Jesus. You pollute His sacrifice the moment you mix it with your own goodness. Anytime you mix your blood with His blood, you defile it. You can't do that. And yet, basically, this is what religion has done. They can't ignore the sacrifice of Jesus, so they say, oh yes, you've got to believe in Jesus, but then they turn right around and you've got to be holy and you've got to do this. And if there's any sin in your life, God won't answer your prayer. And if you haven't done this, and if you don't do this, and they just put all of these things down and all of us are on this treadmill trying to perform and do all of these things and become worthy enough for God to heal us. You know, if you could understand the price that Jesus paid. It's this same thing that we do in our judicial system, that you can't have double jeopardy. You can't have a person pay for the same crime twice. You can't punish two people for the same crime. If a person has been sentenced and has already paid their time, you can't re-arrest them and make them pay again. Jesus has already paid for our crime. Jesus has already paid the debt that we owed. And if you have to bear any blame, then it's the same as if Jesus didn't pay. That's double jeopardy. Jesus has already paid it all. Look at this passage over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's basically saying the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. Remember the wording over there in, in Colossians chapter 1, that we were alienated in our minds and in wicked works, but now he has reconciled us by the blood of his cross. Here we were reconciled. He hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ. The word reconcile means to make friendly, to bring back into harmony. When you tune a guitar, you're reconciling those strings. You're harmonizing those strings, bringing them into harmony. When you reconcile your bank book, you take the statement that the bank gives you and you take your account and you have to reconcile them, make them to where they say the same thing. We have now been reconciled to where God loves us and there's no adverse sentence against us. We've been brought back into harmony, into friendship. There's no animosity between God and us. Man, that is a wonderful statement. We are reconciled. Notice it says that um, he hath reconciled. That means it's past tense. Hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Ministers are supposed to be telling people that God's already paid your debt. Your sin's already paid for. God's not angry. It's already provided. Now all you have to do is believe and receive or doubt and do without. It's up to you. Believe and receive. That's the ministry of ministers. And yet most ministers are saying you aren't reconciled. God won't move in your life until you do this, until you quit smoking. God won't do this. Until you quit drinking, God won't do this. We had a question among our prayer ministers about if a person comes up and if they aren't saved, should we get them saved before we pray for them? No, you don't have to do that. You can get them healed. Matter of fact, it's actually easier to get a lost man healed than it is a Christian. Amen. Some of you don't understand that, but you hadn't ministered to a lot of people. Christians think they have to be worthy. A lost man knows they aren't worthy, and they'll, you tell them, say, Jesus wants to heal you, and they say, Really? And you say, yes. And they say, well, have had it. And they don't put any of their works in the way. There's nothing to get in the way. But man, a Christian will say, oh, I know God wants to heal me because I've been fasting and praying and being so good. And that just becomes a barrier that stops the power of God. It's easy to get a lost person healed. And so anyway, you, you don't have to become worthy to have God move in your life. Now we told them, it says, as soon as they get healed, you tell them now, would you like to serve the God who healed you and take that as an opportunity to introduce them to the Lord. But we have been reconciled to God and we have been given this ministry of telling people about the goodness of God and that God has reconciled you and that God has paid the debt and that you don't have to add to it. You can't add to it. Any attempt to add to what God has done is actually a subtraction. It subtracts from what Jesus has done. You've got to get to a place where you depend upon Jesus and what He has done for you only and don't mix it with your own goodness. Does that mean that you don't live right? No, you do live right because it softens your heart towards God. It's a testimony to other people, but it has zippo to do with God loving you more. He doesn't love you more if you live holy. He doesn't love you less if you don't live holy. You will love God less if you don't live holy. You will love God more if you do live holy, but it doesn't affect God's attitude towards you. It'll affect your attitude towards God. Everybody get that? That's important. And this is what we should be ministering to people. It says in verse 19, to wit, that's old English, for that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. You know, here's something that I haven't ever expressed very well. I've seen this, but I just don't have the words to get it across. But God has reconciled us to him. He has paid the debt. He's not angry at you anymore. God is not upset. You have been reconciled to God, but most of us haven't reconciled God to us. I don't know if you get that. God reached out and paid the price, and now there's no animosity between God and man. Boy, that is a radical statement. And again, just to illustrate how little that's understood... You can go into the average church and they're preaching, if America doesn't repent, God's going to destroy this nation. The wrath of God's about to fall on us. This is the judgment of God. God is the one that caused the age epidemic. God is judging this. They're imputing man's sins unto them. They're saying that God isn't reconciled unto man. That's not what this message is. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. (laughs) 
That's contrary. God has taken care of sin. Did you know people that go to hell aren't going to go to hell for homosexuality, adultery, lying, and murder, and stealing? The people that go to hell are going to go to hell. All of their sins were paid for, but they will go to hell for the rejection of Jesus who paid for all of those sins. The only sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting people of, according to John chapter 16, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, it says, when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Then verse 9 says, of sin because they believe not on Me. The sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting people about is the sin of not believing on Him. And if a person says, oh, I'm believing on Him, then he'll say, well, then why don't you tithe? Oh, I'm trusting you with all of my heart. Oh, you trust me so much that you can't get rid of this money and do what I said. You have to have it. And he'll, he'll point things out like not giving and living in adultery and lying and stealing to illustrate the fact that you aren't trusting in him. You aren't believing on Jesus. But the only issue is whether you believe on Jesus. And if people have already been born again, their sins are forgiven, well then God is pleased with you, even though you're still a mess. And you should get over drinking and doing drugs and committing adultery because it's destroying your life and it's destroying the lives of other people and it's still an open inroad of Satan into your life. And if you give him opportunity, Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves... Servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you yield yourself to Satan, who's the author of that sin. And you're going to give him complete access to you. And I guarantee you, Satan comes, John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes for no other purpose except to steal, kill, and to destroy. He's out to kill you. And if you give Satan an inroad into your life, he's going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. Few of you have heard that one before. <laughs> but you don't want to give Satan an inroad into your life. So live holy. I'm not telling you to not live holy, but I'm saying God loves you independent of your performance. If you've accepted Jesus, all of your sins have been forgiven. And did you know even the people who haven't accepted Jesus, all of their sins have been forgiven? The only thing they will be dealt with is whether they have accepted Jesus or not. And if they go to hell, they will go to hell for the rejection of Jesus. See, once you understand this, it changes everything. People think, well, it doesn't seem fair that a person who lived a really good life and was a moral person and the pillar of the community and helped people and they did good their whole life, but they just never accepted Jesus. It doesn't seem fair that they're going to be over here with Hitler and in the same punishment and receiving the same punishment as a person who murdered millions of people and who did all of these things. It just doesn't seem fair. But see what they're missing is that it's not your individual sins that's sending you to hell because Hitler's sins were forgiven. Hitler is going to go to hell for the rejection of Jesus. People who reject Jesus are going to go to hell and it doesn't matter if they were the pillar of the community. Once you understand how desperate the human race was and how desperate our situation was and that God loved us so much that He sent His Son and had His Son die in your place... 
Jesus, when he left heaven, he had bankrupt heaven. He is the express image of the Father. He's the glory of God. Ephesians, I mean Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And when Jesus left heaven and came to earth, God gave his best. He made this supreme sacrifice. And for you to just be indifferent and say, oh well, yeah, I believe Jesus was the Son of God, but I'm not sure that I want to serve Him. I I believe that I'm good enough. I can make it on my own. For you to reject God sending His own Son and dying in your place, once you understand it from that perspective, there isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person that would just turn up their nose and ignore Jesus. You know, I was talking to a person just the other day who said, I just can't believe that a good God would punish people in hell for all eternity. And because of this, they're just struggling. And I said, but I was trying to make this point that you don't understand that it's not their individual sins, it's the rejection of Jesus. And he says, I just, he says, I would never sacrifice my daughter for anybody. I'd never kill her to try and help somebody else. And I said, see, that just shows that you don't love God. I mean, you don't love people near as much as God does. That just shows that God's love, man, God so loved the world that He gave. And then I took His own reasoning and I said, if you loved a person so much that you did sacrifice your daughter and you literally killed your daughter in the place of somebody else so that they could go free. How would you feel if they just ignored that? Or said, oh, thanks for doing it, but you know what, that's not really important to me. I think I'm just fine the way I am. I don't have to have this sacrifice. I said, the same love that caused you to give that daughter in sacrifice would cause you to have wrath and anger towards the person that rejected such a supreme sacrifice. See, when you understand this, it changes your perspective. There aren't going to be different chambers in hell, and hell number one, or hell number two, or hell number three. It's only this one sin of rejecting Jesus that sends people to hell. It all revolves around that. And if you have accepted Jesus and made Jesus your Lord then all of your sins, past, present, and even future tense sins have been wiped out. And God sees you holy and pure and clean. You were reconciled through the death of Jesus. Again, go back to this illustration that if God was judge and if He passed sentence on somebody and said, you have to die for your crime. And then He took off His robes and came around and said, I'll take your place. And if the judge died in your place, you know, the appropriate response would be that you should feel love and thanksgiving, but you would be dishonoring the one who died for you if you spent the rest of your life saying, well, you know what, I needed to suffer too. It was really my crime. I should be bearing this about. If you limped through life with a sense of unworthiness and guilt and shame and and refusing to ever... Prosper, you would be doing the person who died for you an injustice. 
And yet this is basically what we've done. We still bear a sin consciousness. We still bear this sense of unworthiness, not understanding that Jesus has fully reconciled us unto God. And it says down here, are you still in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. And here's the way that He did it. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to put on the books or record. God didn't even record our sins. And it was much more than Him just saying, well, let's turn the other way and act like they never did this. No, He recorded every sin, but instead of putting it on your account, He put it on the account of His Son. That'd be, you know, today, an example that we have that is similar to this is a credit card. When you give a credit card, you aren't actually paying for the merchandise. What you're doing is giving them your information. That little magnetic strip on there has all of your information on there, and they impute that to you, and then they send that to the credit card company, and the credit card company sends you a bill, and you don't pay for it until you pay that credit card bill. Everybody understand that? And so you aren't really paying for it. It's just being imputed unto you when you give them that credit card. It's being put on your account. And if you don't believe that, then just don't pay the credit card bill and say, oh, I already paid for it when I gave my credit card. No, you haven't paid for it. All you've done is say, impute this unto me. And they impute it to you, but then you have to pay that bill. What would happen if you went up to buy something and instead, as you were getting ready to give them your credit, card, I gave them my credit card. And I said, put this on my bill. Impute it unto me. And if they imputed it unto me, and if I made that payment, then it shouldn't even show that you ever had a charge against your account. If they charged you a service charge and said, well, you're the one that got the merchandise, you ought to pay something. I guarantee you, you'd complain about that. You'd have something to say about it and say, no, sir, Andrew Womack came up and he gave me his credit card and he paid for this and I'm not going to pay for it again. I'm not even going to pay a token. I'm not going to pay a 10%. I'm not going to pay a service charge. He's already paid for it. Why would I have to pay for it? See, Jesus, all of our sins were imputed unto him. When it says that God didn't impute our sins unto us, that's true. But where did they go? They went on his account. Every sin that you've ever done or ever will do, even the sins you haven't committed yet, have already been imputed unto Jesus. And He didn't suffer for them in principle only. He suffered exactly. You know, every one of us have done something. I don't, you know, I'm a relatively moral person compared to most people. I've never gone out and done the things that a lot of people have done. And yet I guarantee you, I've done things that just make me feel like the scum of the earth. Feel like, God, how could I have done these things? God, I'm sorry. Every time that you've ever felt shame and that you've ever felt like just the filth of the world, everything that you have ever felt, Jesus felt that exactly the way that you felt multiplied by billions and billions and billions of people on the earth. He felt every bit of that. All of it. He didn't just in a token take this. He felt every pain, every shame, all of the guilt, all of the sickness of the world that came in through sin entered into the physical body of the Lord Jesus. 
He bore all of your shame. Man, just think about people after they've been out on the night on the town and had sex with anybody and everybody. Homosexuality, murder, lust. Imagine the shame, the guilt when they come to themselves, when they wake up in the morning with the hangover, when they're going through withdrawals. Anything that has ever come as a result of sin. Jesus felt everything that any person in the entire universe has ever felt all at one time put into his physical body. Jesus paid that completely, not just in principle. And once you understand that, then it is not honoring God for you to still bear a sense of shame and guilt. For you to go around saying, well, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace is not honoring God. That's just stupid. I'm not an old sinner saved by grace. I was an old sinner, but I got saved by grace. And now I have become the righteousness of God. And you know, probably sometime during this series, I'll go into more depth on this. But the way, some people just, I can't understand this because you look in the mirror and you still see the effects of your sin. Some of you have scars from things you've done that cause sin. Some of you, you know, sin, alcoholism will affect the way that you look. Sin will affect the way that you look. Some of you got gray hairs that you earned every one of them. Amen. Some of you have got things that you can see in the mirror. And if you can't see it in the mirror, you can see it in your mind and in your emotions. You bear the scars of it. And you look on that outward person and you just can't think, how could God love me and treat me as if I've never sinned? The answer is that when you got born again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That's not talking about your physical body. Your physical body isn't changed. Your soul, your mental, emotional part isn't changed. But in the spirit, you are a completely brand new person. And all of that sin and all of the effects of that sin has been wiped away. And you were given a brand new spirit that is now righteous and holy and pure. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were vacuum packed. So that after you get born again, this spirit that was created in righteousness and true holiness, John, uh, Ephesians 4, 24, it was sealed. And once you sin as a Christian, sin may enter into your physical body. It might enter into your mind and your emotions and cause you problems. And so therefore don't sin. And if you do sin, repent of it and turn away from it and get rid of it. But it never penetrates the seal around your spirit. Your spirit remains righteous and holy. And John chapter 4 verse 24 says, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God isn't looking on your outside and seeing the scars and the effects of sin the way you see it. He isn't looking at your soulish person and dealing with your thoughts and your sense of guilt and and shame and all of these things. God is a spirit and he looks at you in the spirit and in the spirit you are a brand new creature. You've been sealed and you're perfected and righteous and holy. And a holy God is completely justified in fellowshipping with you because in the spirit you are as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. Man, that is one awesome statement. 
And if you're saying, but I don't feel that way, then you're in the flesh instead of in the spirit. You're still out here looking at the outer man and searching your mind and emotions. But in the spirit, you have got the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. You have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. That's not true in your little peanut brain, but it's true in your born-again spirit. In the spirit, you're a completely brand new person and holy God can fellowship with you. You're on the par of God. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. It didn't say, so are we going to be in the sweet by and by when we all get to heaven, what a day that's going to be. So are we in this world. This is talking about that in your born again spirit, you are now as holy and righteous and pure as Jesus is, because He imputed all of your sin to Jesus. And Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. He paid everything that there was to pay for sin. And now he's been resurrected and you have the spirit of his son that's placed on the inside of you. I'm telling you, what I'm saying is so profound. The average Christian doesn't know this. If we knew this and if we knew that God was pleased with us and that God had imputed all of our sin... There would be no more conscience of sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 says we should have no more conscience of sin. No more sin awareness. And yet with most people, how do you start your prayer? Oh, Father, we come before you so humbly. I know that we aren't worthy of anything. Oh, God, we failed. And you just mention all of your sins, hoping that if you'll mention them all, maybe God won't. You go in sin conscious. I heard Kenneth Copeland one time say that if you feel like the gnat on the back of an elephant when you approach God, you just feel so insignificant and so unworthy. Instead of talking about your smallness, talk about the bigness of the elephant. Instead of talking about how unworthy you are, talk about God, how awesome you are to love somebody as unworthy as me. Focus on what God has done and not what you haven't done. And most of us, The scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, the latter part of that verse says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Carnal human beings tend to always look on the external. This is the reason that religion makes you dress a certain way and you got to act a certain way. Jamie and I were talking, we saw somebody on the television and it was just amazing how they became religious. When they started talking about the Lord and they changed their voice. and I tell you, I hate religion. I like it when a person can't just say glory to God, but they got to say glory to God. Everything's got to have uh on it. You got to jerk and you got to... There's one guy that many of you know, I won't mention his name, but he looks like Groucho Marx when the Holy Ghost gets on him. He has, anyway, I won't go there. But people devote, they just have a religious style to where you got to talk a certain way and you got to do all of these things. Man, I hate that stuff. I forgot why I got off on that, but there was a good reason. I hate religion. Why was I saying that? Oh, see, religion 
Just as long as you say glory to God and as long as you pile your hair up on your head and, you know, women will try and in an attempt to look like they aren't wearing makeup, they'll put on 10 pounds of powder to look pasty. If their cheeks are rosy, they'll put on powder to keep it from looking rosy. Man, that's just stupid. If your barn needs painting, paint it. And if it needs two coats, give it two coats. You know what? Who cares? But see, religion, they don't care what you look like on the inside. You could be vile. You could be a gossiper. You could be vicious. You could be having unforgiveness and bitterness in your life, but just as long as your hair is the right length, as long as your skirt's the right length, as long as you do this and live up to their standards, they just don't care. They look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God is concerned about your heart. And so if you're saying, oh God, I still am overeating. I haven't, I I promised you I wouldn't do this anymore. And man, I pigged out. No God, I failed over here. I smoked again. There's people that believe you go to hell for smoking. You don't go to hell for smoking. You'll smell like you've been there, but you do not go to hell for smoking, (laughs) man. But see, if you could ever get beyond all of these externals and if you could go to saying, Father, through Jesus, Jesus paid for all of my sin. All of my sin was imputed unto Jesus. And I am completely free. It's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what the word justified means. It literally means to declare free from the guilt and the the penalty attached to grievous sin. But you know, a little simple layman's definition is justified is just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, never sinned. Man, when you understand that, that it's just as if you'd never sinned. It's just like you were living holy. Romans 8 verse 4, I've already used that verse, but it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteousness of the law is never going to be fulfilled in you based on your performance. Even after you get born again, you don't do everything perfect. But in the Spirit, when you got born again, if you are in Christ Jesus, then the righteousness of the law has been fulfilled in your spirit. Your spirit is as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Your spirit is perfect and pure. Man looks on the outward appearance. Even most of us look on the outward appearance and judge us based on what we've been thinking and how our emotions go. But the truth is, there is a spiritual you that in the spirit realm, you have been forgiven, you're clean, you're holy, and there shouldn't even be a sin consciousness. You shouldn't even be aware of sin. And I know some of you are just scared right now. Like... Oh man, if I was to quit focusing on my sin, if I was to quit thinking about, oh, I'm an alcoholic, I've been an alcoholic for 30 years and I'm just one drink away from being an alcoholic again and if you didn't live in absolute terror of being an alcoholic and if you were to forget it, you'd just go out and drink and you'd fall right back into it and your life would be a mess. Did you know it's exactly the opposite? If you would quit seeing yourself as an alcoholic, if you would quit getting up at every meeting and saying, hello, my name's Andrew and I've been an alcoholic for 30 years and I've been sober for six months. You're reinforcing the fact that this is who you are and that you're an alcoholic and that you're only one drink away. 
If you were to understand and receive what I'm talking about and recognize that, man, I'm a brand new creature and that God loves me and I am delivered and I am no longer an alcoholic. I was an alcoholic, but I got delivered and set free and I'm not that way anymore. If you could really grab hold of what I'm talking about and change your identity so that you see yourself in Christ and see yourself forgiving, forgiven, you would live holier accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. The reason some of you always cave into temptation is because you see yourself as, oh, I'm just a person who lusts. I'm really an adulterer in my heart. And you're trying not to do it, but you feel like that's who you really are. You only know yourself in the physical, in the soulish realm. You don't know who you are in the spirit. If you were to see how that you've been clean and holy and pure, and God has cleansed you of this, and that Jesus paid for that, then you know what? You would just say, Father, thank you so much. You would, you would feel so clean that you wouldn't want to go out and do anything to defile that temple that you're dwelling in. Man, you would wind up, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you're living in sin, it's because you see yourself as a sinner. You need to see yourself as a person who's been changed and that you aren't a sinner anymore. You become the righteousness of God. And when you do that, you'll wind up living a holy life. You will have fruit as a result of relationship with God, not a way to relationship with God. Big difference between what I'm preaching and what most people preach. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that Jesus paid the debt. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for you to pay. All you can do is humble yourself and receive it as a gift. And man, if you understand this, it just sets you free. The only thing Satan ever had on us was our sin. The only thing Satan could ever use again. He can't tell you, oh, God can't do this. God can do anything. Most of us know that. Satan isn't effectively saying, oh, God doesn't have the power. God can't do this. He's not telling you God can't. What he's telling you is God won't do it because you aren't worthy. And the moment you quit getting this unworthiness attitude and you recognize that through Jesus you are worthy, you had all of your sin imputed unto Jesus and Jesus imputed all of his holiness unto you. It's a swap. It's a great swap. The great exchange. Once you understand that, then you know what? When Satan starts bringing all of this stuff up, say, hey, go talk to Jesus. Jesus paid for that. That's not going to hold me back. That won't keep me from receiving. Oh, I hadn't studied the word in a week. But you know what? I'm healed because of Jesus. By his stripes I'm healed because of what he's done. I haven't done everything I'm supposed to do, but you know what? I'm healed because of this. Does this mean that you just now don't go live in sin? First of all, if you understand what I'm saying, this will cause you to seek God more than you've ever sought Him before because you'll be so in love with the person who gave everything for you. So you will just naturally become holier as you understand and embrace this. And, and so this doesn't lead you into sin. It'll set you free from sin. But you still live holy because you don't want anything to dull you towards this. You don't want anything to block this and to steal from you those things. So you don't yield to sin. You know, I'm free. God would love me the same if I went out and committed adultery. And I know some of you that just curls all of your religious toenails. Man, I can just... It's like, 
Oh no, God would be angry. No, God's paid for all of my sins. I could go commit adultery and you know what? God would still love me. But, you know what? I love God. And I don't want to do anything that would ever offend God or uh, turn against Him or take this greatness that He's given me and do that. I love God and I love my wife. And because of that, I am not going to commit adultery. I will never commit adultery. Because I love God and I love my wife and I'm living a holy life. Just because I can do it and God would still love me doesn't mean I want to do it. God changed my want to. God changed my heart. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh man, that's not me. If I thought I could get by with it, I'd go do all of this. Well, then you know what? Your want to has never been changed. You hadn't been born again. You're just religious. You acknowledge that God exists, but you're still trying to get there on your own goodness. You haven't humbled yourself and been changed on the heart level because when you get changed on the heart level, you want to live for God. Amen? So you know what? As far as what I'm saying and what religion is saying, yes, I believe you should live holy. I believe you should study the Word. I believe you should give. I believe you should do things. But the motive is totally different. I'm not doing these things trying to earn relationship with God. I have received relationship with God as a free gift and I've put faith in Jesus. But now because my heart's been changed and I'm so thankful for what God has done, I live a holy life as a fruit and not a root of salvation. Those are two totally different things. And somebody might say, well, it's the same thing, same end result. No, the motive of the heart is everything. Jesus said, or not Jesus, well, Jesus said through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, if I give all of my goods to feed the poor, or even if I give my body to be burned and don't do it motivated by love, God's kind of love, it profits me nothing. The motive is more important than the action. If you are as straight as a gun barrel but twice as empty, it doesn't count. You not only got to do what's right, but the motive has to be right. You have to be serving God out of love and thankfulness, not in order to try and get God to do something. If you have the wrong motive, it voids your actions. Motives are more important than actions. And if a person truly gets born again, their motives will be touched and changed and they will live wholly as a result and not as a way to relationship with God. Man, that's major. Major, major thing. Anyway, we're going to just continue to talk about this. I'm not through. I'm just quitting. And we'll continue tonight and we'll go further into this. I had some things I was wanting to share this morning, but I never made it. And we'll get into that tonight. And I believe that this